skill. Should I just go in three, two, one? Thumbs up. Like in Top Gun, need to learn the little signs. <laughs> Whatever they fucking do. Hello and welcome back to the Cine Skinny. We're going to learn military sign language in 2024. <laughs> Uh, it's the film podcast from The Skinny. It's Peter Simpson with Jamie Dunn, Anna Heaparouz, and Ellie Robertson. Everybody say hello. 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 Positive stuff. Good energy in the room. Uh, we are back at EHFM for our final recording day of 2023. Uh, we are recording. I really kind of tried to skim past that as well. It's like it's our final day, and then Jamie jumped in with, that's sad. And I'm like, <laughs> it is fact. Let's move on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we are back with a end of year two parter. So, this part. We're going to talk about the top 10 films of the year and then in our second part which will be coming out in a couple of weeks we're going to be talking about the more basically this is the proper one right with the research and all the the planning and etc etc and then the second half is going to be all about like knitwear and people being thrown down flights of stairs so <laughs> cho- choose your fighter and we will uh or i would I'd say actually listen to them both because they'll both be good but we haven't recorded either of them yet so i can't say too much about that I can't, can't speak too much for myself, but I'm pretty sure this is going to be good. Um, so yeah, that's the plan for today. Top 10 films of the year. But first, Jamie, a brief overview, if you will, of this, the year of our Lord, 2023 in Scottish cinema. Was it any good, I suppose, is the top, the top line question. Oh God, I didn't know this question was coming. In, in <laughs> Scottish cinema or just g- cinema in general? You know what, take cinema in general. Well, I oh, you backtrack. <laughs> wait for it from a Scottish viewpoint. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I actually think the films were okay. I think the most, the scary thing is the landscape. Obviously, we don't want to get into doom and gloom, but it has been a tough year for cinemas. Um, but the films have been good. You know, we've had some interesting films. I, I kind of like the idea that, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer did give us a kind of glimpse of what the future could be where blockbusters don't have to be the things that keep cinemas going um, and the way that blockbusters have been going this year maybe we do need other uh, temples to uh, emerge like I say without any research or prior warning I would say it has been a good year for film a tricky year for cinemas um, and in terms of Scottish film and film culture we still don't have a film house which is deeply depressing but there are kind of shoots of a possible revival um with a crowdfunder which seems to be being quite successful and if that does bring us a cinema um in edinburgh next year would be fantastic um i think the film festivals this year went really well i think Mm. glasgow film festival was a success it's going to be you know it's going to be it's a bit small and usual but I think really good and I think we'll see that a few of the films at Glasgow are going to be in our top 10 so this quality of films were good uh, and the same could be said for Edinburgh I thought Edinburgh even though it was a smaller again a smaller edition this year um, really good programme um, and and it seems like it's going to be a bigger festival next year so th- so it's a, it's a year where it's a kind of transition year isn't it where there's uh, things were happening which were good and are possibly going to be better next year mm. um, which is how I kind of see the landscape right now which is maybe me being optimistic, but as everyone knows, I'm an optimist, aren't I? I'm, I'm something so rosy, rosy, rosy tinted. Earlier, earlier this year, you did say that a film was the worst film you'd ever reviewed on this podcast, and then said five minutes later, but if they brought out a sequel, you'd still go and see it. So I think he actually <laughs> is an optimist. Film was that, or was that the Redfield? Or, or am I a masochist? <laughs> <laughs> One of the two. We could get into that, but there simply isn't time. So, should we just crack on with the top ten? Mm-hmm. So. 
This is from the the Skinny magazine. You know, the one we all work at. Uh, so it's the top 10 of 2023. So the way this works is that all the writers submit their own personal top 10s. Jamie puts all these top 10s into a spreadsheet, they call it. Uh, and then we get the results from there. So this is kind of like an amalgamation of all of the writers who write for the magazine. Uh, all their personal top 10s hewn down into one definitive list of films that were released in the UK in 2023. Now, we've talked about most of them on the pod in the past, uh, and there isn't time really for every time we bring it up for me to flag every previous mention of the films. We're busy, you're busy, uh, but if there's some chat that you'd like to hear an expanded version of, we've probably done it in the past, so just get into the archives and have a rummage around. Uh, The end of your clip show vibe continues. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we're going to go from 10 to 1, a lot of very interesting films, starting with number 10, which is Saint-Omer, uh, Alice Diop's courtroom drama centered on a French Senegalese woman on trial over the death of her daughter and the writer scholar who is kind of following this case as it unfolds. One of the last films we talked about was Anatomy of a Fall, which is another slightly, it's not as French, but slightly French courtroom drama. This is a very, very different beast from that. And Anahi, I believe that you were a big fan of Saint-Omer. So maybe you could talk about it for a little bit. I was. If, if you want. Yeah, I'm not down to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> but well, would you still like to talk? I mean, who, okay, who, I, I wants, have, who prepared, wants to talk about I've it? I've prepared notes on Santa Mare. <laughs> Ellie's prepared notes. But Annie, you go first. <laughs> you know what? Well pointed out. That's teamwork. Ellie, I believe you were a fan of Santa Mare. Would you like fan. to talk about yeah. it? Well, Excellent. When, uh, when we, since we last talked about this film, uh, Alice Diop has told the LA Times that she fainted on set at the time that they finished shooting because it was such a uh, intense and stressful production for the entire crew. And uh, Gazlaki Molanda, who played uh, Lawrence Coley, who is the defendant, has told the New York Times that her role was so intense that she had nightmares for months afterwards just from getting in the headspace of it all. And yeah, it certainly is, I think, the most intense film of the year. You're right, Peter, it shares this special interest with Anatomy of a Fall, though it's not a complete overlap. They're both responding to the kind of popularity of the courtroom drama, and I think that this genre is popular because in our minds, the definitive account of a narrative is like uncovered in the courtroom, right? If any place is, if any place, if there's ever a place where something's going to get explained, it's going to be in the courtroom. But Saint-Omer is immediately at odds with this belief. Like very, very early on, Lawrence Coley is asked uh, why you placed your 15-month-old in the ocean. And she says she doesn't know, but she hopes that the trial will reveal the truth to her. Um, Despite all the evidence, she pleads innocent, believing that she's not the responsible party for the death. And it leads to this really interesting question of, you know, who is, you know, she, she opens up talking about her, like, financially controlling but absent father, but he doesn't really feel like enough of a character to shoulder this responsibility. Her ex-lover, who's this elderly white man who's pretty much hidden his second family, he's mu- he seems much more antagonistic, but at the same time he comes across as really, like, helpless and and ineffectual and not really responsible. Uh, responsible. And I think that's kind of 
an important part of the tone of this film is that it's really, really quiet. Like, there are no, you know, last-minute objections. There's no big, booming Brendan Fraser lawyer. Everybody is just waiting their turn to speak and leaving huge pauses and going through things, like, one at at a time, all in this very kind of claustrophobic courtroom. You have this emotionally cataclysmic event with this huge crowd of people and uh, most characters, Alice Diop's self-insert protagonist among them, barely say a word. The courtroom doesn't turn out to be a place where the truth is uh, like captured and solidified, but the courtroom is actually really, really limited. Uh, you know, the thing responsible for this tragedy isn't in the courtroom because colonialism and patriarchy can't be put on trial in the same way. It's incredibly thoughtful. And yeah, I think even with its very limited scope and its really sort of like quiet timber, it's incredibly arresting Mm. yeah i agree (laughs) this is one of these films where i really want to see it again because i actually think to be honest i think i'm probably not brain enough to understand it on first go i think it's a film you actually have to see again because i don't know what's it's actually unlike any film i've seen recently it's like it's 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 got its own kind of film grammar it's doing its own thing and i think i maybe didn't tune into exactly what it was doing initially so i could see there was greatness happening in front of me i couldn't quite uh, title together was like mysteries that I just couldn't solve while watching it so I really want to see it again I agree like the first time that I watched it 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 kind of like it was a surprise to myself that what I was seeing was gripping me so much because like I say there's nothing particularly dynamic going on it's just these very closed off performances and everyone feels like they're just full of secrets and you know conflicting accounts but yeah it's still like grabs your attention and like rattles around in your head and it's definitely like one of the films on this list that i think has stayed with me the longest since we saw it because it's not quite early on when was it it came out quite like early in the January year February. yeah yeah it's one of those films where i wish i went with a group of people and you go to the pub straight afterwards to talk about what mm. you think all those glances mean because because it's obviously there's a parallel between the two women um but but I'd never quite got exactly what it was trying to say about those parallels, you know? Um, so yeah, I would love to just like pick people's brains about it a bit more. Well, there'll be plenty of chances to rewatch it and pick people's brains because it's on movie just now. So it is streaming. You can go and watch it. That's Santa Mayo. That's number 10 in the countdown. Number nine is May, December. Uh, so Natalie Portman is Elizabeth. She's an actress shadowing Gracie played by Julianne Moore a woman who's kind of like infamous for her relationship, which she started when she was 36 and her partner was 13. So this is the new Todd Haynes one, Carol, Dark Waters, etc. I've not seen it. And after last time, when I handed over to the wrong person, I'm just going to say, who wants to talk about May, December? Don't all put your hands up at once. I also have notes on this. Um, and I'm really glad that I get to talk about it because it's a great film. It was so enjoyable. It's a great film that deals with a really, really horrific event that's been buried. Like, years have passed since Julianne Moore's character first groomed Charles Melton's character. And she's constructed this really serene, classic American yeah, suburban utopia. You know, their kids are in college. They're having these summer barbecues. It's pie making, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's all fake. The second that she starts speaking, you realize, how emotionally manipulative she is and that's not a spoiler like comes out of her mouth the second everything that she says is a passive aggressive like underhanded comment intended to kind of wear down the self-esteem of her family members or infantilize even her husband um even in, in, a, in a weird way like you know even the public who are clearly repelled by this person's story uh they've occluded its real malice behind like 
scandalous tabloid journalism and we see glimpses of these over-dramatized TV movies where, you know, people are in ridiculous costumes and it looks really, really evil. You feel like nobody in this world is treating this crime with the appropriate amount of seriousness. And that's also a huge part of Natalie Portman's character who's treating it like a role. The only thing that's like more terrible than this nonce character is a method actor (laughs) who's trying to like, you know, empathize with her and get get in her head. And I think that, um, you know, Todd Haynes has chosen this really interesting way to kind of mask the horror of, of the child abuse. The film is directed like a soap opera. You know, it's this, the turns of this domestic story, they feel very melodramatic. Um, there's genuinely a little Phantom of the Opera piano sting that plays at the end of like every single scene. There's a point where Julianne Moore like opens the fridge and looks in and <laughs> takes a pause and goes, we're out of hot dogs, dun dun dun. And that's funny. But there's, even though there is a humorous element to this directorial decision, don't let that make you think that May December is uncomplicated. Like the soap opera veneer is also allowing for some interesting storytelling. Like even though it's melodramatic, the fact that Charles Melton's character is an amateur lepidopterist who cares for gestating chrysalises because he wants to rehabilitate his local monarch butterfly population. That's like a really nice, very ornamental metaphor that you'd see in something like a TV show for his desire to you know, impart on things in adolescence that that was robbed of him. Uh, It's full of stuff like that. It makes the film not a funny film. Sometimes I see people talking about it in a very like, oh, it's great. It's really campy and dark humor. And it's like, I don't know that there, there is real drama at the heart of it, right? It's just that that very, you know, unrealistic tone makes it not a funny film, but like a lighter film, a more digestible film, where you're never really hit that hard with the trauma of the story that it's covering. Uh, But you're made really well aware of its facts and the characters involved. So you're sort of allowed to contemplate on your own terms just how dark and fucked up it is. Yeah, this is a film that's really grown in my mind since I saw it as well. Like, I loved it the first time I watched it, but it's the one that I've just kind of kept thinking about. And yeah, you're right, it's like that kind of melodrama that Todd Haynes does so well in films like Carol and, uh, you know, uh, what else, Far From Heaven or whatever. But he's he's got this kind of weird, that is this kind of like, sense of humour but really dark cutting sense of humor that cuts through it and I, I I think it is funny I think some, there is an argument of it is, is it funny or not I think it's definitely meant to be funny but it's also meant to be heartbreaking and I think what I like about it is it's 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 a film that doesn't really have villains I mean everybody's kind of like got kind of moral, moral question things are going on you know like both women are terrible um but it's not but it's not about it's not a film about kind of picking who, who's right or wrong it lets you just decide uh, mm-hmm. by what by observing yeah there's a, a scene where um like julianne moore's uh, son from her first marriage offers a theory as to why she is the way that she is and far more interesting than what this theory implies is how later on she responds to it and she's just incredibly dismissive of it she kind of like throws any clemency you might offer her out the window so it's really interesting character building like just i don't know everybody kind of like really sticks in your mind in a really uncomfortable way but it's also kind of fun seeing all the little memes that are going around because these are obviously real people who have been interviewed and it's un- the, un- the the impressions that, that julianne Moore's doing is uncanny she's got the lisp down perfectly and this the, some of the scenes in the film are like left verbatim from interviews so it's like wait is it a true story it's a true it's a true story it's based on a true story that like uh it happened in australia i believe uh, wow. uh, uh, yeah, the name of the uh, person is Mary Catherine Fallow, um, or yeah, uh, I, I I mean, I didn't know much about the story going in. I just knew that it was based on a really like 
oh, notorious thing. Yeah, I thought it was loosely based on it, but actually some of the discussion is verbatim and her behavior is like definitely been modeled on this person wow um, i didn't know that yeah so so i'd also say it's worth to dig in and looking at some of the past interviews mm. well we've gone from one that came out right at the start of the year to one that is still out in cinemas now actually so you can go if you're listening to this today it comes out like you should be you can go <laughs> to the dca in dundee and see it tonight um but then it's coming on it's not going to be on netflix so it's netflix in america but it's coming on sky cinema like now tv from this Friday, I believe, the 8th. So that's May, December. That's number nine. Number eight, very different passages. So Thomas Franczewski is a film director running hog wild on the streets of Paris, causing chaos for his long-suffering partner, Martin, played by Ben Wisher, and his new flame, Agat, played by Adele Exarchopoulos. Thomas is as bad as the fashion is good. <laughs> Uh, Jamie, did you want to talk? You're wearing a lovely knitted jumper today. Did you want to talk about passages? Unfortunately, that's it's not called as, a segue. Unfortunately, it's not as good as any of the jumpers and <laughs> uh, passages, which is really sad. Yeah, I've just realised like, all my favourite films this year are centred around you know, complete narcissistic arseholes. So I'm not too sure what that says about me, but uh, I, I just love watching terrible You'd people. Just like to see how the other half live, or are you trying to get? Are you trying to take notes for the future? <laughs> I mean, probably about both. Um, yeah, like uh, this was like. A quite an emotionally devastating film for me like um i think i think why it's so good is it's a f- very honest about a certain type of person you know the type of person who is solely concerned with their wants and needs and will walk over anyone to get what they want so in the film that person is thomas who, who's played by franz rosowski and he he's just deliciously awful and completely torpedoes the life of two people who are in love with him essentially and he is in love with them as well but but it's, it's how, like, if you're a narcissist, how that doesn't matter. You, you know, your sort of feelings for, for other people go out the window. Um, and, and, but what but what makes the film sort of great is, like, actually, despite we're w- watching him inflict all this kind of deep and lasting pain on two lovely people, you do kind of feel a bit sorry for him. You can understand where he's coming from as well. So that's why it's a kind of rich film. It kind of, like, lets you walk in this person's shoes and you kind of realise you know why he is like he is um, which I thought was maybe a testament to Rosowski's performance which is just fantastic um, it's a very sexy film it's got two of the best sex scenes of the year and it did uh, kick up a lot of very bad discourse but I think you know as, as we said on the podcast um, the sex scenes are, are great because they just reveal a lot about the character you know they're not just sexy they're, t- they're talking about the dynamic of the characters um, and they're, they're, you know they're really key to the plot Um as you said, Peter, it's also a great fashion film. The clothes that Francesco wears uh, are ridiculous, um, but he actually manages to make them look cool. And like like the sex in the film, the fashion and the kind of everything, the set design, the music, um, it, like uh, it's um, you know it 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 informs on the characters and the dynamics. So, you know, so it's a film that's really kind of holistic in that way. It's like everything's been thought out really well, and everything is sort of telling you a little bit about these characters. Um, you know, it's not just decoration, it's not just trying to look pretty, you know, what he's wearing tells you a little bit about his personality and how he's going to treat someone in that scene, uh, which is like, like a brilliant way of uh, making a film, you know. So, um, yeah, one of my favourite films, it's really stuck with me, I saw it much earlier in the year. Um, yeah, great one. And else, uh, got anything to say about Passages? I think we. I think some of us have said what we want to say about passages, which, yeah, I feel, I feel which like, is that it's good. I feel like we've talked about it like four or five yeah, times. Yeah, I feel I liked it more than other people know. The... I did like it a lot. Yeah. I didn't love it, <clears throat> I think. 
which felt I and I think because everyone else did like for a lot of people it was like one of their films of the year that felt like quite a big gap whereas yeah. I did really really like it it was beautiful as well I think Mubi have been doing like um on their social media like a series of paintings based on like some of the stills in the film mm. and that's really beautiful because it's like these very like the way that it's shot and the way that the compositions are done like everything is just very like painterly and even though it's like the most chaotic worst man you've ever met in your life <laughs> like there's a kind of real stillness to the way that the film kind of like moves that mm. feels like really taut in a way but also really beautiful um and i really love that about it like how it looks is just so good yeah, I think people have been really repulsed by that character. Some people just like just can't stand him. Yeah, um, and I think that you're meant to feel like that. And I think like the key to me is why like the best scene in the film is when he's not in it. Like, there's a great scene with, mm. between the two other characters, the characters that he's hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a, a really interesting performance and probably quite an honest performance. There, mm -hmm. you know, there are people like that. You know, it's not like a outlandish no, character God, no. yeah, by yeah, any yeah. means. Central characters with a lot of depth, but who are ultimately doing bad things is a recurring theme that we will revisit <laughs> shortly but not in the next film that's a segue so number seven is rye so passages is on movie and rye lane which is on disney plus is number seven so dom and yas are two young people in south london who have a kind of chance encounter in an art gallery after they've both been through quite bad breakups they go on a kind of wild classic rom-com adventure but with loads more bright colors and fish eye lenses <laughs> around uh, Peckham and Brixton, is it? Like kind of South London. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brixton. Uh, so it's a debut film from Rain Allen Miller, David Johnson and Vivian Opara. Very, very good fun. A lovely, a lovely film. Who wants to talk about the lovely film? Yeah. I'm Anne here. Am I going to, am I finally going to bait you, bait you after 20, <laughs> with, with 23 minutes on the clock? Is Anna here about to <laughs> lean something. forward in her swivel chair? <laughs> I love swivel chair. I love this chair. Um, yeah, no, I am. I am going to talk about this film. Um, yeah, I think I was really surprised that it was so high up on the list. Um, and I think that's actually really kind of beautiful because it is a very small film and I think it does things in a much more understated way than even like Passages, May, December, Santa Mer. I think those have like a real kind of standout star kind of cinematic quality to them. Whereas I think what's really nice about Ray Lane is it just feels really fresh, but in something that also feels really, really familiar at the same time. So you kind of talked about it being like this kind of classic rom-com thing. And there are some like really funny and like, really incisive nods to the genre there's this one cameo that is just like <laughs> really well done and really like cleverly deployed but it's also just like really subversive with how rom-coms work so like you have the meet cute but it's in this grotty little bathroom and you have these two people running around but they actually don't really like each other and they're actually not really clicking for like a good kind of beginning bit of the film and it kind of finds yeah I just think it's like a really nice way of showing how like attraction actually works in that often it's slow and it's a bit awkward but it just feels very when it happens it feels like cinematic even though you're just two kids that are like kissing in a bathroom and I think that's like quite sweet um so yeah I really liked it it's also just a really gorgeous it has a gorgeous visual sensibility this is being compared to chewing gum a lot I think and how it uses like its visual gags um but it really has its own thing. I really like the fisheye lens. I think it's, I don't know. Every time it happened, I was like, oh yeah, it feels like, 
I know she had a vision she was just being a bit like mad on set I really like that idea of it um yeah and like London is really beautiful it's just made with love love and it's just like yeah I think a very like tender and earnest film despite how like cynical its characters are and how like wry itself is um like it feels things quite sincerely and I think that's quite nice um yeah it's a good film it's yeah. a it's a fun film. It looks great. Yeah, really good performances. I I mean, like one of the uh, rom com conventions that it shirks that I've always hated. This might be a bit of a spicy take, but it, it comes with all rom coms, right? Even like from Hallmark to like the big classic Sleepless in Seattle ones. It's they're like they're all quite normy, aren't they? Like 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 the characters have to be rendered in a quite an attainable way so that general audiences can connect with them. If they're like too off the wall, then they'll be like too intimidating for people to connect with. But it's like, fuck that. Romance films are meant to be fantasies. Like I want romance film characters who are better dressers than me and like <laughs> swan about these really like nice bougie art galleries and get street food and you know I, I definitely got swept up in the characters and their story. Um, and that, that you're right, that very like gradual way that they like get to know each other, that very like quite realistic depiction of attraction and how people like evolve through their their meetings with one another. But even if I didn't like the writing, I'd still appreciate the film for just being really like vibrant and beautiful and maximalist um, in a way that like real life isn't always like that. But who cares? This isn't real life. Like I'm having a good time watching this through its kind of like weird fisheye lens tv music video style but i think real life also is like that sometimes isn't it i mean i think that like that's the thing is you can see stuff and be like oh that person dresses really cool or oh this seems like a really cool neighborhood i want to go to like that's mm. something that i think romance films should provide which they don't always yeah you know sometimes the the aesthetic of a romance film might just be taken out of like the most sort of ubiquitous magazine uh like interior design kind of thing it's a subtweet of like love actually and it's tough <laughs> <laughs> so so setting love actually aside that's right <laughs> that's rye lane so that was number seven on the list number six how to blow up a pipeline daniel goldhaber 1970s throwback thriller based on the andreas mam non-fiction book of the same name it's a smart sharp ride that does actually contain a tiny little bit of practical advice on blowing up a pipeline <laughs> so uh this is loads of fun if you haven't seen it already, I am genuinely stunned that it's on Netflix. It seems yeah. like it seems like uh, the comrades over the unexpected comrades <laughs> over at Netflix HQ have come up with a good one for once in their goddamn lives. Uh, because this is actually, as I said at the time, genuinely has the courage of its convictions and just straight up says doing sabotage is cool. Doing sabotage is cool, and if you don't like it, you're a nerd. And I appreciate that, but it says all that through kind of like really nice like yeah old like kind of throwback film cinematography the cast is really great the structure of the film is really interesting it gives you a chance to like get to know all these characters and to understand all their various different motivations it genuinely has a name of the film in the film moment uh, in kind of like ridiculous fashion but draws attention to it when someone is in a library or a bookshop holding a copy of the book upon which the film is based and someone walks up to them and says how to blow up a pipeline, eh? And then <laughs> it basically just cuts to them be like, no, we got this guy on the team. I found them reading a book. Whoa. Um, yes, very, very good fun. Very um, engaging and will leave you appropriately fired up, shall we say. If you don't like this film, you're a narc. 
Yeah, I really actually do believe this. My friend, can I tell this story? Yes, you can. Okay. Because I know what what the story is and I rushed through that synopsis. So we've got a minute. So go for it. So my friend went on a date with a guy. Um, I think they've been dating a couple of times. They went to see this film. This is my very, 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 uh, very leftist friend. So she went on this date with this guy and they went to see this film. Um, And she afterwards was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, was it like great, blah, blah. And he just started on this whole thing about like, yeah, I don't know if this is like the best way to kind of adjourn, like, you know, like the police in the film and like all of this fucking stuff. And just really like, well, like, you know, like sometimes like violence isn't necessary. And like, I don't know, do we really need direct action? Like police were just doing their best. And then she broke up with him. (laughs) Right there. (laughs) What if the pipeline has feelings too? Yeah, Yeah, that that fence had a family, damn it. (laughs) So that's how to blow up a pipeline. Like I say, an incredible turn of events. It's on Netflix. So everyone get wired into that. Uh, so that's number six. So we've reached the halfway point. We're moving back into the realms of narcissistic psychos <laughs> for number five, which is Tar, which feels like it was about four years ago, even though it was earlier this year. It was year. the first thing that I saw yeah. in cinema. It was like sure, basically our first thing back was yeah. Tar. Kate Blanchett is the unhinged and career obsessed conducted to the stars. Lydia Tar is Todd Field following Kate Blanchett as she tries to keep the various professional and personal plates in her life spinning. Also features, for my money, the best accordion playing in yes. any film of 2023. But that kind of wry, sarcastic comment will really be saved for the second half of this episode. <laughs> On this, we're talking solely about the artistic merits of the films. Who would like to talk about Tar? Does anyone like to talk about Tar? Or shall I talk more about this accordion? Uh, I could talk about Tar. I think I'm down to talk about Tar, but you could also talk Jamie, about Jamie, tell us about Tar. <laughs> well, I saw Maestro the other week, and in comparison... <laughs> Tar has a lot more to say about acting, composition, and conducting. It's a much better film. Um, so as yeah. I'm not going to talk about Tar, I'm going to talk about a similar but less good film it that you haven't good. seen. So I've seen it. Yeah. It's okay. It just wasn't as like interesting. Um, so uh, yeah, this is just another extraordinary film about a complete monster who treats everyone terribly and then gets their comeuppance, which is just my jam. I think I just love it. I just you know what? That's a Netflix category that I would watch everything on. When they're like cute blockbusters from like the 90s like, I don't want that but it's like what was it narcissistic another film about complete monsters complete yeah. narcissistic monsters going around ruining everyone's lives it's like play all <laughs> play all shuffle so uh, yeah so so Todd Fields I think does a really beautiful job of directing here it's, it's the film kind of modulates a bit like a bit of music where but it's not a kind of melodic music it's like there's like it's, it's quite a tonal jagged film which, which I love about it um, so it's got these kind of incredibly kind of long dialogue scenes like the opening scene for example that uh you know where Lydia Tal has been interviewed on stage by the New Yorker and it's like ridiculously over the top or when she's like she'll, she'll go to like Juilliard and she'll teach a lesson and, and completely humiliate a student so these these long intense dialogue scenes interspersed with these kind of like a like more impressionistic scenes with, with, with like Lydia just walking around Berlin or sort of trying to trying to write music and, and they're really quite startling you know like the, for example there's a moment in the film where she's like following this woman she fancies and then she ends up somehow underground in a tunnel pursued by dogs like in the hounds from hell and it's like almost like you've stepped into horror film and then it goes back to like you know the Berlin Symphony and it's like it's a film that's got full of these kind of sort of disturbing Un, unhinged moments um but it never kind of explains itself you know so it's a film where like you've got all these kind of scenes that are 
interrupting like the main narrative uh, and then there's a lot of scenes that are elided as well so like in, in a normal film for example you might have got the scene where Lydia gets fired you know she 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 gets into trouble with her boss for all these uh, well eventually she should get into trouble for her sexual um, misbehaviour but really she gets in trouble for that bullying of the student at Juilliard um, but you never see that scene you know so like that's that's taken out and the only reason you know she got fired because she's going on stage and she punches out her replacement you know so it's that a film where like it's completely surprising you because it does things differently from the other types of films like this you know these kind of like films that are up for Oscars essentially it doesn't actually feel like one of those films despite having a great performance from uh Kate Blanchett, there's other things gone. It's a bit more arty and a bit more interesting um, than those types of movies. Um, so yeah, it's a really, it's a film, it was really, uh, really surprised me while I watched it. It's just full of really great memorable scenes. That's I think is why it stayed around, even though it was released early in the year. People have like talked about it and like shown those scenes again and again. Um, so yeah, and it's also just got a knockout performance from Kate Blanchett. I think that the thing about Tar and there's been a few things on this list so far, and there will continue to be so. They're about morally ambiguous or certainly not directly, obviously, apparently good or bad characters presented in a way where you try and comprehend and take in the whole film in a one-hour in order to get the full effect of the film. But these are all films where the way that criticism, and I'm looking at TikTok and Twitter, happens. And Tar is like a particular example of like a film that kind of got memed a bit by people talking about the same 25 seconds of it over yeah. and over again, ignoring the fact that it's a two and a half hour film where like the whole point of the film and the whole point of something like a Santomer or some from the sounds of it, having not seen it, like a May December is that like you're to take the thing in the round and know that like one part of it relates to another part of it, but that the way that the story is being told means that you can sympathize with a character in one moment but equally notice that they're a monster in the next moment. Mm. And like that seems to me to be like a recurring thread throughout these films, which is ironic given the way that a lot of them get talked about, which is like this person's terrible because of this thing that they did in this one scene. Yeah. Also ignoring the fact that like maybe you're supposed to think they're terrible. Like characters aren't, <clears throat> it's not good writing if the character is nice and bad writing if the character is not nice. Well, yeah. so, I've so many times I've heard this described as a film about cancel culture, which is not really what it's about at all. Like it's like, there's that one scene where she, I, I, I guess like calls one of the students completely woke and humiliates him. But other than that, it's not about that. Um, and I guess, you, you know, if, if you think it is about that, you haven't started to watch the whole film. You know, it's the same way that people talk about Saltburn and call Saltburn a film about like a class satire when it's actually not exactly a satire on class really when you know actually what the film's about. Yeah. So yeah. I like the fact that like it's not just that Lydia Tarr is a bastard, but rather it's criticizing this institution that she's a part of that like rewards and defends bastards, right? Like it, it, she's, you know, just one part of her character is the way that she really like destroys these uh, unwitting victims, these people who get into the music industry because they're they they show a proficiency and but they're new, they're vulnerable, they're easy to manipulate. But at the same time, she screws over just as many like um, you know highfalutin elderly people who are like her close confidants, and then they screw her over back, and it just shows the whole thing to be like very like ruthless and toxic, and it's like bastard on bastard action. This is why I like. Yeah. I respect I, none I, of these people. I want them all to lose. I guess the one thing you can see actually, the thing about the film is she does get her comeuppance a little bit. Like, because the problem is actually, in real life, there's a lot of men who have done this and still have the jobs, you know, or, or like don't really get 
quite the punishment that she gets. I mean, she still she still got a job at the end as well. You know, it's not as if she's completely destroyed. She's just working. But you'd like, hope that people could walk away from this film now knowing that just because someone's wearing like an incredibly expensive tuxedo and waving a wand and getting an entire orchestra to do a really like classic piece, that doesn't necessarily infer any kind of moral superiority and that this may be a bastard e.g. tar and we could get into the whole what i would describe as attempted failed discourse around but why is lydia tar a woman how does that work but there simply is not time (laughs) Uh, so that was tar that's on now tv like sky cinema as well number four we're getting there uh number four is oppenheimer killian murphy is the philandering control freak and big time atomic scientist j robert oppenheimer uh, this is Christopher Nolan's tale of the life and times of Big Atomic Boy. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is epic in its scope I've written down, which is to say that every male actor in Hollywood has a speaking part in this film. Christopher Nolan still has never met a woman, but my God, when sure. it comes to charting a long and complex story with many, many threads, there aren't many like him. So... Who has anything to say about Oppenheimer, or do we want to move on to number three, bearing in mind that we have to record another episode of the podcast after this? Yeah, maybe we should move on. <laughs> the, I mean, it was great. It was yeah. better than Barbie, is my yeah. main feeling well, that's about the, Oppenheimer. Well, I feel like that is one of the things about Oppenheimer, is that it will always be remembered as the film that was on the same weekend as Barbie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think hard for it to break out of. Yeah, and I think the position of the spoiler, Barbie's not on this list. But I think the fact that Oppenheimer is on this list, sort of, I think, and Feel free to jump in if anyone disagrees with me. I think that Oppenheimer is probably the better film, but I'd be much mm. more likely to watch Barbie again before yeah. I watch Oppenheimer again. Yeah. Barbie's a lot more fun, but not anywhere near as substantial, I should think. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Oppenheimer is longer and has like a more just complicated plot. And also like because it's Chris Nolan, it has that very like action pacing, even though it's just scene after scene of like men sitting around in rooms reading out papers, like the scenes themselves only last two minutes long each. And then we cut to another room with another man, with another I paper. I do love him. Like, I know that he's such a like boy filmmaker, <laughs> but I I just would watch anything he does. I think yeah. he's so cool. I love watching Look, him do dads, things. <laughs> dads need thrillers to watch as well, okay? Dads need movies. When this are the dads dad, going to get a win? This is a dad <laughs> movie. <laughs> You know, yeah, it's and you also then end up in the weird situation of being like, well, the Warner Brothers, Mar- the Warner Brothers Barbie film gets the moral victory, and you're like, I'm leaving this conversation, <laughs> I'm signing out of this chat. Uh, so that was Oppenheimer. It's you can you're just gonna have to rent it if you want to watch it. I imagine it's the kind of film that might get like IMAX re-releases on a semi-regular basis because it was such a big hit, it might come back. But hmm. it's not on any. Also, street- the way those atoms smoosh together in his dreams, that's just peak filmmaking. That's. That's the action film we all want. I feel like Ellie may have more to say about Oppenheimer, but again, there isn't time. Um, Number three on the list, Past Lives, uh, the debut film from Celine Song. Nora and Haesung are childhood friends in South Korea. They are torn apart when Nora's family emigrates to Canada. Decades after this separation, they are reunited for a week in New York City. Um, I haven't seen Past Lives. The rest, if, if I haven't said that I haven't seen it, I have seen it. Okay. I don't want this to just be like, I host this podcast, I've never seen any of the films. Which <laughs> one, that which is one's how the, we originally pitched the podcast. <laughs> yes, which one's the cinema? Is it the one with the big telly in it, etc., etc.? <laughs> so who wants to talk briefly about past lives? Yeah, I can. Um, yeah, I thought this was a really, really beautiful film. Um, I watched it when it was showed at the Edinburgh Film Festival. So like you say, it's about these kind of two childhood friends and they have since like 
grown apart because of the facts of immigration. And then they kind of come back together when um, Nora is married now and has been married for several years. And it's this kind of grappling with what could have been these alternate futures, the weight of all of this time that has passed that nothing has come out of, like reckoning with the weight of, I guess, like a missed opportunity, but not even knowing if it was a missed opportunity. There's this concept that kind of winds through the film that I now, because it's in Korean and I can't, it's East Sung or something. Does that sound familiar? But it's this idea that like you form relationships with people based on like all of the past lives that you've had with them so you just have like a great it's essentially this sort of like connection and chemistry that you've formed with someone that's formed through all of your past lives and then finally when you find each other in this life you're sort of building on all of that and what they're grappling with is whether that is what they have whether she has it with her husband and it's just a really beautiful cipher I think to talk about ideas of like unbelonging about the lack of certainty that you always have not only in like your romantic life but in every aspect of your life when you've been displaced or when you've had to move or when you're growing up in a culture that doesn't really belong to you how are you ever that certainty that I think we all try and look for that we think marks out like that we've lived our life like quote-unquote well If you're never afforded that, then how do you, you're always stuck in this sort of in-between place between people and between countries. And I just thought it did it really, really beautifully. Like it was really, really gorgeous. Again, just a really kind and compassionate film. I don't think it does the romance in a kind of, like, you know, when you go into a restaurant, they have like those tip jars, but you're meant to like vote for things. (laughs) And then that's how you get the tips. Um, It does, I think sometimes like love triangly films kind of, want you to pick a team and they want to see who's gonna like vote for that person the most but this it's not really the point is that there is no certainty and the point is that there was no way that she wasn't always going to be caught between two people and so it's not really about like making a choice it's about the conditions of her existence are that and paying a great deal of like love and respect and like care and attention to what that means um that's very rambly but yeah i just thought it was really really beautiful i really liked it it's another quite like unconventional romance film yeah that like yeah sort of like could very easily just sort of disappear into some ridiculous drama but is in fact trying to convey something quite complicated which i really appreciate it doesn't talk down to its viewers trying to say that like you can have more than one soulmate you can have more than one person you belong with and how incredibly painful but at the same time quite beautiful that is that sort of like very mature double-handed approach that i think other romance films might fumble so that's past lives another one that you'll just have to rent or get a dvd they're called so uh (laughs) christmas is coming get get on the phone to santa so there's only two films left our second favorite film is one that's still in the cinema Uh, so killers of the flower moon is number two letterbox favorite uwu granddad is back on the scene (laughs) as martin scorsese's latest is the story of the osage people a tribe of indigenous Americans whose land had oil on it, which then, how do I put this, brought them into contact and conflict with white America. Uh, I have simplified that story massively, but the film is over 200 minutes long. Who wants to try and very briefly praise some of the things that happened in Killers of the Fire Moon before we can get into talking about our film of the year? 
I can. Uh, I haven't prepared anything, but uh, it's, it's well, this will be brief then. Well, the thing is, you say it's a long film, but there's so much in this film, you know. So it's like it is a love story. It is a story of a massacre. It's a story. It's got a kind of courtroom drama. It's got a big investigation at the center of it. It's the the founding of the FBI is we've done with the like the main story. Um, I, I thought this was a brilliant film. It's another kind of dad thriller, um, but you know, it's fucking good. It's um, it's like Mark Scorsese is a great filmmaker. I think, if, if I'm being honest though, I, I haven't loved a lot of his recent films and I think this is by far the best film he's made in, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years, maybe. Um, I, I thought it was fantastic. It's, it's centred on these amazing performances, you know. Um, Lily Gladstone, I think, could win the Oscar. Um, I think people were saying, mm-hmm. like people were telling her, oh, you shouldn't go for uh, uh, best supporting actress because you're, you know, your your character's doesn't have much screen time but when she's on screen she burns through it she is so intense she doesn't say much but when she does as as her character it's very powerful um it's an incredibly moving film um it's a film that makes you really angry you know it's a film that's it's set in the past but really it's talking about america and the whole problem with the like, capitalism and western values and how like you know white people people of the west have you know treated mistreated people and 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 thought that people's uh, resources were theirs to take um and it's a, it's a story that's very time timely um you know we see it happening day in day out and martin scorsese has made a really angry powerful film about it which is also just a hugely entertaining swaggering picture um just really well put together well i'm sold uh so kills of the flower moon it, like i say it's still in the cinema because it only came out about four or five weeks ago so You've got Christmas and New Year coming up. You've got holidays. Use them. Go and see Killers of the Flower Moon. So we'll do a very quick rundown like they used to do on Top of the Pops. Uh, for any young people who are listening to, Top of the Pops is what the Spotify top, oh. like Spotify wrapped used to be, but it was every week. Should I get the music? Uh, is that it? Is that, is that, is that top of <laughs> Number 10, <laughs> Santa Mer. <laughs> do you want me to keep doing that or not? <laughs> Saint Omer, May, December, Passages, Rye Lane, How to Blow a Pipeline, Tar, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, Killers of the Flower Moon, and the number one film of the year, as voted for by the Skinny's writing team, is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's very, very good. Uh, Laura Poitras' documentary, which simultaneously tells the incredible story of Nan Golden's life and career as an artist in New York, and the equally incredible story of Nan Golden's full throttle foot on the throat campaign against the Sackler family for their role in the opioid crisis. Cry- their role in the opioid crisis. I so very nearly got to the end of that in one go. <laughs> uh, it is a really incredible film. And I think the thing that is the most, I mean, it's kind of no surprise that a bunch of journalists picked it as their favorite film. Yeah. But. <laughs> but <laughs> what does that mean? Speaking <laughs> of narcissists. <laughs> full circle. Like I planned it all along. Um, but I think, yeah, the incredible thing for me about it is the way that it manages to do this kind of macro and micro thing simultaneously, but give them both enough space to breathe and show the ways that they connect to each other and show the way, like, it sounds really basic, but show like the direct connections between things in people's personal history Mm. and in their cultural history and in the present and in how they do their work now. It is a really amazing film. Anahit, do you have any things to say briefly about why it's an amazing film? I'm going to go around everyone, but you just happen to be on my immediate right (laughs) to give any kind of spatial map to anyone who's (laughs) listening to this. Yeah, I mean, this was my number. I put this as my personal number one. Did everyone else? No. 
I can't remember. I don't think mm. it was my personal number one. Oh, was it my number one? It was high okay. Up. Oh, well, then it was number two one. for me. Oh. Because I love blowing up pipelines. Oh, so that was my number one. Okay, great. But. Well, so I won out of the four of us, <laughs> is what we're saying. Um, I think the thing about this film that I am still astonished by, and it's been over a year since I saw it, because I saw it at LFF last year, is kind of what you were saying, just how it weaves together all of these not quite disparate, but like just very isolated timelines and arguments. And it creates this really like holistic, incredibly intricately constructed argument around like queerness, around sort of biopolitical neglect, around like these huge, huge like ideas of really great scope. And it does it through like diary entries and archival footage and quite like not mundane but the bits where it's about like their work and pain and the opioid like kind of protest group and stuff it's just quite like standard almost like documentary footage there's nothing that feels necessarily in those moments really cinematic and there's a really interesting texture to the film and how it weaves all of these things together I think the only other documentary that I can think of it's like when I used to teach like uni students how to write essays I used to point to Ava DuVernay's 13th quite a lot as a film that shows how you construct an argument. So it had like an argument about like, essentially the slave trade was replaced by the prison system. And then it kind of builds that argument like brick by brick. And I think there's something really similar about how All the Beauty and the Bloodshed does it in that it goes back to her childhood and the loss of her sister and these seeds of like grief that are planted in her life. And then goes through the New York scene in the 80s and then it goes through to now. And it's just binding it all together in a way that feels, I just don't understand how someone faced with so much footage and so much material could pick out these bits and bring it together like they were always meant to be. Like it was a puzzle that was always there and she just knew it. Um, kind of like, isn't it that Michelangelo thing that like a sculpture, you're just carving away the bits that shouldn't be there. Like it feels like that. Um, I just think it's really beautiful. Like I love, I can't, we were trying to figure out what it's called in the office the other day. What did they call that New York 80s scene? No wave. No wave. No wave. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Like I really, really love that kind of like era of art, that era of activism. Um, it kind of like goes as well into the AIDS crisis um, and is just really sharp and angry there's this like one amazing bit of footage that i still think about all the time where she's wearing this kind of like bondage fit and then she has this little hamburger purse and i actually think that like that's the outfit i want to be buried in. <laughs> <laughs> like you know they call it like your little ghost outfit like what outfit if you died as a ghost that you that would just be representative of you i think that's the outfit for me um it's just, just so fucking cool and just like visually interesting and i would die for nan golden and it's a hard film to talk about because it's just there's so much of it but it's just it feels really important like really really important in a way that I think if you just hear the summary of it and it's like oh it's like a documentary and it's kind of about the opioid crisis and it feels like it'll be almost dry and it's it's not it's like a snapshot of like art and life for decades and it's just I know I, I really like it I, I I totally agree. Um, I mean, like, I think that you're right. It is a bit strange to say that it's a documentary and people are like, oh, you know, 
about this one particular era of history or this one particular artist's life and that surprisingly is like our top one film of the year but i think there's like a real uh case for that i think that it's bringing in like a lot of the stuff that you've seen on this list that everyone loves like the people that the very head of the opioid crisis the sackler family are kind of like you know dragged through the dirt in this film they're actually made to face the consequences of their action and you know in may december or tar or whatever we're seeing that people (laughs) are really enjoying bastards getting their comeuppance this year but at the same time like what you you described down here is like scenes of them working not in in mundanity but in just a very like real way like Mm -hmm. that shows us how activism works kind of like how to blow up a pipeline pipeline because you know you get the opportunity to actually have like a real life look into people doing community organizing and 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 how change is is brought about so i mean yeah i think that this is really really interesting and it's it's somehow amazingly bringing up all of these like wonder especially like you know as well past lives that that feeling like how is a life defined and Mm -hmm. how is a life shaped over time from one decision to the next and that very much bleeds through in the the sort of historical narrative of this but yeah it's like all these different things that we've been seeing this year that people have been enjoying they're all compacted into this one film that is documentary it's a real life example and that's really exciting so there's definitely to me like a theme emerging in what people have really hungered for out of cinema this year and all the beauty in the bloodshed just hits on head yeah i kind of feel bad for all other documentary filmmakers you know because how do you follow this because mm. you're right like i think what it is lord of poetry who's made this a masterpiece like because um you know it, it's, it's actually several films put together so so it is about nan golden now as an activist changing the world it is about nan golden in the 80s you know living the most fantastic life but also seeing all her friends die from the AIDS crisis, you know, you could make, that could be a great uh, film, you know, like t- following her life in the 80s. You know, you could have a film just about her art, you know, that that's a big section of the film is just seeing her art play out on screen. Um, but it's the way it's weaved together, it makes it really emotional, and makes it really moving. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah, a really wonderful film. Um, Nan Golden, I agree a hero somebody I, somebody I didn't really know much about mm-hmm. before this so it's so again it's just just doing actually what documentaries are meant to do as well infor- it's just informative as I well learn so much yeah. in just these like this hour and a half when I really like I don't know it's just me because I'm not American but I really didn't know much about an angle well, fun anecdote we realised that we have posters from DJ Cad Drag Nights from a couple of years back that we didn't realize the images that they used are images from Nan Golden that we saw in All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's like, oh, yeah. this artist is so ubiquitous. They're like, they have this presence in our life and particularly in the queer community across the world mm. that we didn't even really like get to appreciate until this film really broke it down for and us. And then Shapiro's also in Variety, which is one Correct, of my favorite yeah. releases of the year, you know? So yeah, it, it, it's, it's one of those things, I don't, can't remember the phrase, uh, the term, but it's like, you know, when you don't know a phrase or a term, and then you start to see it all the time. I feel like I'm there. You're the bad, bad yeah, mind yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I'm, I'm being bad mind by uh, yeah, Van Golden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she was also in um, like a lot of the Palestine protests, like in the kind of Jews against um, Jewish Voices for Peace, was it? Or but she's been in like a lot of their posts. Um, and then I was going back to Olivia Lang's The Lonely City, which is one of my favorite books ever. Um, and she's obviously in that quite a lot. And it was one of those things where like, I didn't notice it the first time I read it. And then watching this film, you go back and you're like, yeah, like she's just in all of the stuff that we find important. And it's exciting now that we notice that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now she's in the most important position of all. <laughs> <laughs> Number one. <laughs> 
on the skinnies films of 2023 probably her greatest you're welcome now (laughs) in many ways this is a victory for nan but also for us Uh, so yeah so that is our top 10 of the year uh, like I say, we've discussed all these on other episodes of the podcast. So if you wanted more chat about any of them, go and listen to those episodes. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with the second, slightly more chaotic and looking at the clock, speed run version uh, version of a kind of end of year roundup. Um, but yeah, thank you for now to Ellie. Thank you. Jamie. Just here. And Anahit. Thank you. And uh, this has been The Cine Skinny and that's been the best films of 2023. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.